This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a woman of Turkish nationality working in academia in the U.S. and Europe? In this episode, Eski tells us how growing up in Turkey shaped her understanding and relationship to race. She's also going to be sharing with us her struggles of being a female academic of Turkish nationality in a context where race, class, and gender play an important role in shaping one's experiences. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Ezgi. Ezgi's understanding of race began to take shape early on as a little girl living in Turkey, a country that is founded upon the idea of monoculturalism, an approach which seeks to construct a homogenous society through assimilation instead of embracing diversity. She says she faced challenges when her parents moved from one city to another. I'm Turkish and a quarter Algerian, actually, which is a piece of information that I didn't always volunteer. Um, because in Turkey, everyone should be Turkish. But the truth is that the grandparents of my grandmother immigrated from Algeria around 1920s to escape from the French rule. So they were basically refugees. And my grandmother was born in Turkey, but she would speak Arabic with her parents But when she married to my grandfather, she began living among the Turks. So she didn't have anyone to speak with, and she wanted to integrate. Then her Arabic became a little rusty. And to me, what's even sadder is that she never taught Arabic to her own children. I guess she realized that raising her children Turkish would give them better lives. After all, Arabs and Kurds are looked down upon in Turkey now. And that was the case back then as well. So... As a result, there is no one in my family, apart from my grandma, who can speak some Arabic. But this little story tells you a lot about the racial relations and ethnic identities in Turkey. In this regard, Turkey is quite different from Europe and a lot similar to the U.S. It's a country that is founded upon the idea of a monoculture, one ethnic identity. So this monoculture works on the basis of similarity at the expense of difference. In a way, it's not essentialist like what we see in Europe. Anyone can become Turkish, but with a price. You cannot be anything else. Well, you can be, but your primary identity should be Turkish and your utmost loyalty should be towards the state of Turkey. So this was the state of affairs. But going back to my own story, I was born in Bursa in the northwest of Turkey. But my parents are from Gaziantep in the southeast of Turkey. So for those of you who don't know much about Turkish history and geography, these two regions are polar opposites. The West is developed and rich, and the Southeast is underdeveloped and mostly populated by Kurds. Anyway, I wasn't born in the Southeast, but I lived there in a remote village from ages 6 to 10. And it was my formative years, so I developed a nice, thick Southeastern accent. And at the fourth grade, I moved to Bursa, to the West, to live with my grandparents and to continue my education in a big city. It was initially really tough to integrate. Because of the disparity in education, I was really behind and I had to catch up like a lot. But more importantly, I also had to lose my accent and the words that are peculiar to the Southeast. Because I was going nowhere with my dialect in the classroom or in the schoolyard, people used to imply and even sometimes ask whether I'm Kurdish. 
I had the dialect from the same region after all. But no, I wasn't. And I wasn't hiding that. I was hiding another unlived identity, though. But essentially, I was doing what I was supposed to do as a good Turk. I was integrating and becoming part of that monoculture in the West. And after that integration moment, I think I did well. I went to a good high school. I earned scholarship to study in a private university in the capital. Ezgi says that she initially struggled to make sense of her feelings and the situation she faced when she moved from the southeast to the northwest. But at the same time, she learned to blend in with the people she rounds herself with, an instinct and ability which she appreciates to this day. Initially, I didn't understand what I was doing wrong, especially when I was using the words that are like specific to that dialect. I was like... You know, I meant well, but either that was the wrong word to use or I wasn't explaining myself well. So even with my own father, I don't think he fully understood some of, uh, because I mean, he was from there too. He's from there, but he kind of lived in the West and, you know, he's lo- he lost his own dialect. And when I was using that, he, there's a word garip, which means strange. But in my dialect, it means also someone that you don't know. It's not necessarily negative. So I used that and he, he was like not understanding that I'm using that word. Like, it's simple as that. And for me as a kid, it was confusing. And I was like, okay, <laughs> there's certain things that I should change. And in a way, you know, you're a kid as well, like you pick up that fast. And it's in that environment, you start learning and using different words. So in a way, for me, the transition was overall smooth. And it didn't really create too much of a trouble just a lot of misunderstandings, a kind of being a little lost in the beginning. But then I guess that inst- it also gave me the instinct to kind of integrate and imitate and, you know, blend in instinct. So I, I got that is instinct early on, which is a good instinct sometimes when I think about it. It's not that bad after all. Eski didn't think much about race or racism in Turkey because she was taught to not think about it. But that all changed when she left Turkey and went to Sweden and Switzerland to continue her tertiary education. She says she encountered numerous stereotypes about Turkish people and struggled to make sense of them. When I was 20, I went to Sweden as a part of the Erasmus Exchange program. And I really love this program because it's um, like a crash course on different cultures. And it was, it was my first time abroad and that I could meet a lot of people from all over Europe and Australia. For some reason, we had a lot of Aussies. And I think they have their bilateral deals with Sweden, but it was actually nice to, fun to have them around as well. And this was, when I was in Sweden, like in this group, it was the first time I encountered questions about race. Because in Turkey, the questions about race are very subtle and it's about, you know, whether you fit in that monoculture or not. And if you think that you belong there, you're fine, you're good. But in my interactions with the fellow exchange students, I felt like the rules were a little different because I became the designated person to inform everyone about Turkey related. You know, I would get all kinds of questions from how we dress, whether we write in Arabic letters. And my favorite <laughs> is whether polygamy still existed in Turkey. <laughs> and, and I was like, where do you get these questions? I have no idea. And in a way, gets sometimes pretty frustrating to answer all that because you also feel responsible. You feel like these Europeans will form an opinion about your entire culture based on your answers. So you have to really do a good job. But I think I did my best. But after university, I came to Switzerland to do my master's degree at the age of 22. And uh, my first two years here in Switzerland were like Erasmus program all over. Uh, This time it was a little more diverse. But the questions were more or less the same. And my favorite one was this. So we don't consider Turks to be European. 
What do you think? And I'm like, is this a debatable point? I feel like it's not. I feel like you made up your mind. And how can I convince this person that in Turkey, we think we are also a little European. We are different. We agree that. But we also think that we have some common history, some common goals. We are members to similar regional institutions. But years later, I realized that their comments about Turks not being European were actually all about race. What they meant was nothing to do with all the things that I was listing and thinking in my head. They were saying that basically Turks are not white with a Judeo-Christian background. But I really didn't at the time pick up on, I didn't pick up on that. I didn't know actually what they meant. And I felt also out of place when confronted with this question because, you know, I told you about this monoculture in Turkey. So you're Turkish, right? You belong there. You, this is your identity. But we didn't really think about about identity in, in racial terms at all. So we were just Turkish and in a way that was enough. And there I was, I had to make sense of it all and put myself in a larger hierarchical category of white, non-white and this and European, non-European. And I had no idea, and I still don't have any good answer to deal with that kind of question. But in addition to such essentialist questions, I would also get more mundane comments. A backhanded compliment slash insult I once heard was, uh, well, you look pretty and you have great cheekbones. Uh, we thought that Turks are ugly. So, I mean, again, you know, what do you do with this kind of comment? And I think I, I remember being frozen like for a while. I was like... And after collecting my drop jaw, I responded, oh, funny you say that. I'm average in Turkey. This is not a good answer. But, you know, like I didn't expect this to come up with a statement that can cover an entire culture and civilization. That sounds like crazy to me. But another trope that I often heard was, you're so nice. You're different from the other Turks I know. So this is in a way well-intentioned, but still a hopeless case because I mean, in a way, you can make this person more of an ally. But the issue is that he or she will always attribute your niceness to something unique about you, your education, or I don't know, like, and then they will still think negatively about the rest of your kind because you were different, right? Like, because you did something different than the rest is not doing. So luckily, these are kind of questions and people who would ask these questions disappeared around me as I, as I continued my education and entered in the PhD program. Now I have my own solid circle of friends and they have their own diverse experience themselves. So I guess this is kind of one of the perks of living in a city like Geneva, where you can actually meet a lot of people who actually experienced and they are worldly, they know a lot. So I feel in a way quite comfortable here in my own group right now. Like this initial encounter and the questioning and misunderstanding in a way stopped and I'm glad it did. After completing her PhD, Esgi went to the U.S. for one year to continue her research. There, she says, she experienced something completely different to what she went through in Europe. After finishing my PhD, I left for the U.S. for a year. And I lived in Boston. It's quite a progressive city in the U.S. And there, I had none of these problems. Again, I guess I look racially ambiguous and secular with good education. So I'm sure this helped a lot. But overall, I found that Americans didn't have the prejudice that the Europeans had about Turkey. And when I talk to an average American and tell them I'm Turkish, they say, cool. 
And this is a word that I never, ever heard here when I mentioned that I'm from Turkey, when I'm in Europe. Because especially in the US, they say, wait a minute, I know another Turk and he's a rocket scientist or something. It's because most of the Turks living in the US went there for education and stayed over there. So the American perception of Turkey and Turkish people is quite positive, actually. Also, this is because Americans have uh, overall really no or little idea about Turkey, where we are geographically, what the background is. But I was indulging in this and I felt really liberated, but also felt guilty about feeling this way. Because it's not like Americans aren't racist or they don't have prejudice. They are and they do. It's just their prejudice is directed to other groups. And for the first time, after a long time, I felt that I don't need to argue about my identity and my belonging. And it kind of felt good. And Still, though, I feel a little guilty about feeling this way because I see that they have that kind of prejudice that we discuss about the treatment I receive sometimes here in Europe against a lot of population to Latinas, to some of the Asians and all. So I could just kind of blend in easily. And in terms of cultural structures, it was working similar to Turkey as well. You know, they have a similar monoculture story going on as well. And anyone in a way can become American because here in Europe, it's all about blood and belonging and, you know, your ancestry. There it was about becoming, which felt again a bit more liberating. Esgi reflects upon the relationship of stereotyping and racism. I feel like probably stereotyping is the beginning of racism because you rely on this as shorthand instead of figuring out and saying that, you know, there are differences and this is a whole group of nation composed of, I don't know, so many million of people and they all have different attributes and I don't know, maybe we don't have to think where the line between stereotyping and racism starts. I feel like they belong together. As long as you're not checking on that, as long as... Uh, because sometimes, you know, relying on shorthands is not bad. But if it's about, you know, judging an entire culture, maybe it's bad. Eski is an academic, or more specifically, a postdoctoral researcher in Switzerland. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the world of academia in Europe, what you need to know for Eski's story is that there are very few people with a background similar to hers. As a result, she often gets tokenized. I don't think I face racism or altering in my day-to-day job because I'm an academic in Switzerland and people like me are rare, especially people with my background and my education trajectory, which started in rural Turkey. But overall, I think academia is quite elitist, classist, white, and male-dominated. So when you make it in this highly structured and hierarchical field, you get the honor of being a token minority, a token woman. (laughs) It's because, again, academia is elitist, classist, white, and male-dominated. But somehow, they also want to be diverse. It's this recent trend. The diversity point is getting a lot of traction. And as a result, few people like me, non-European women academics, are summoned to sit on panels or speak at public events. And I want to stop here and unpack this trend because it's not all negative. I think they have the right instinct and we need more diversity in academia for sure. And it's horrifying to see all male panels like mammals, right? It's could that event organizers have the instinct to include women or non-white people. And these are all good intentions, right? But oftentimes the execution is quite poor. And I'll tell you why I feel this way. Because when you're the token panelist or speaker, you sense that you're token. I sometimes get such invitations, asking me to speak about things that I know and sometimes things that, that I don't know. It's outside of my expertise. 
and I check the list of participants and I immediately know what's going on. Oh, they need a non-European woman. I get it. I need to help them get diversity and legitimacy points. And in return, I have the privilege to appear on this panel or moderate that event. It's mutually beneficial, right? I mean, granted, it's good for us. It's certainly good for us. But what these event organizers are forgetting is that it feels horrible to be talking something right? Your imposter syndrome kicks in and you feel you don't belong to this event. You can't even think that they are not interested in you or your opinions. You're there as a window dressing, right? I tell you, these kinds of negative thoughts are quite counterproductive when you're going to take the floor to give a speech or moderate an event, because it all sometimes even becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. You end up being the worst on the panel and act as if you don't really belong there because you, you feel like that. And in a way, it structures your entire interaction on the panel or on the platform. So my call to event organizers is this. It's great that you guys got the memo. Yes, we need more diversity. Invite diverse candidates. But don't stop there. Because that token woman, that token non-white person, non-European needs your help more than the traditional wild male participants who are already behaving as if they own the entire place. So after inviting your diversity speaker, talk to them a little more, give them more attention, explain why you invited them and why you want to hear about their experience on this or their expertise on that. Help them to feel that they naturally belong there because it's hard to believe this when you feel that you're the token something. And I tell you, your diversity speaker came farther to earn their place on this panel anyways. They had higher hurdles to jump and longer lines, lanes uh, or lines to wait as well. Another thing you need to know about academia is that attending conferences is crucial for networking and building a reputation. And for Esgi, attending conferences, particularly outside of Europe, is difficult because she can't obtain a visa easily. This is one of the points in life that really works me up <laughs> because I feel like when Europe built its external fortress, it also kind of shackled its internal others. Yes, with my Swiss residency card, I'm able to travel to within the Schengen area. But for a lot of Europeans and people with decent passwords, non-Turkish, they don't know that what happened is that it also became ridiculously more difficult for us to get places, um, visa for places like the UK, Canada and the US while you're in Europe. So what's happening is that because Europeans no longer need visas to travel practically anywhere, the regular embassies in Europe stopped receiving visa applications and they clustered up application centers to few places in Europe to cut costs, I guess. So, for example, to apply for a Canadian visa, I have to go to Paris, changed country actually for it. And I think privatization is happening on a larger scale in the business of issuing visa. And uh, private companies, they are the ones that prep documents to be stamped by the embassies. And I tell you that the privatization made it worse. I mean, visa regime was already frustrating. Now it's worse than ever. And generally, privatization does that, <laughs> makes something mediocre worse. Because in the past, you would deal with civil servants who actually could tell you about the process and they could answer your questions. Now these private companies are running the business of issues visa like a business and they tell you nothing and your connection to the embassy is cut and you can call their call centers in India and they tell you nothing either and probably know nothing. So it's really frustrating to be non-European asking for visa after visa to attend events and I tell you, I stopped going to the events in the UK since 2015 because why would I? 
it takes a lot of time, money, and energy to get visas to the UK. And generally, they give you for six months, which is probably good for one event only. And I began saying no to events in the UK and stopped applying for the um, conferences there. And in a way, I know that I'm hurting my career by boycotting a lot of events like this. But I really couldn't bring myself to apply for one more visa. Really, like I was, it, was, it was up to here and I was really, really frustrated. The last time I applied for a Canadian visa to attend the annual Convention of International Studies Association, this is one of the big events in my field, I almost had a nervous breakdown. I had to go to Paris to apply. I went there to apply, but obviously they don't immediately give you your visa. So what am I going to do? Hang around until the decision? I have a job here and, you know, like I'm changing countries, so I cannot leave my passport there either. So I had to come back and luckily I had a friend there who she's also Turkish and she knows how hard it is. So I sent her, my passport to her and she dropped it off and picked it up and sent it me the passport. But the problem is that the passport got lost in the Swiss customs. I had to make calls after calls. And two days before the conference, I still didn't know if I'm going to the conference or not and whether I can get reimbursement for all the expenses I made or not. I literally literally very sick and I had this cold actually that swept me off my feet for a few days and I couldn't enjoy the conference like my peers I got accepted went there spent all the money and then uh, wasn't there to present but you know still so worked up and even when you get the visa and everything oftentimes if you have a non-European passport when you're going through the customs in the US or Canada they put you on a different line you know your european friends are fast-tracked with their estas and you have to wait in the longer lines with others who have less valuable passports i don't know whether you can value passports but apparently these days they even rank them so oftentimes it pains me to see my colleagues waiting for me for hours sometimes in the airport until i go through the customs so that they can uh, we can share a ride together to the hotel and it, i feel like this is humiliating because i do my best to blend in to be a good academic I work hard to get accepted. I get my travel grants to cover my trips. I sometimes pay myself as well. But when then custom officers put you on this longer line, it becomes clear, you know, no matter what you do, you won't really feel belong there. And I'm, I know I'm complaining about this as someone who has a certain degree of privilege, right? I have access to Swiss funds. I have Swiss salary. And I find it difficult. How can someone from third world can overcome these obstacles? You know, when people ask about, you know, why don't we have more uh, participation from the third world? I want to say that probably there are somewhere waiting in a line because that's what you do. It's just sad when it comes to this hopes for diversity. And when I see that, you know, there's no way to increase that when you have all these obstacles and barriers. Just because there's a door open doesn't mean that everyone can come in because some people have to wait in the line. So... That's one of my biggest frustrations in my work, I think. When Ezgi experiences these moments at the airport, she's grateful to her colleagues who try to understand her situation, who sympathize with her. In my case, I think it already felt good that, you know, because the story is also like we fly together as well, because there are not many flights anyways. We fly the whole journey and at the airport, we are put on different tracks. They fast, go fast, I don't. And before that line, like separation moment, they tell me, you know, we will wait for you doesn't matter. You know, that, that confidence, like that understanding was already good for me because initially when it first happened, they didn't understand. So why were you so late? And I was like, well, my line <laughs> took forever. And, um, but in a way it was good that later on they realized what's, what I'm dealing with. Sympathy, I guess, that's already good for me. And 
to understand that someone else might have a worse day for you. Like people talk about, complain about jet lag and going to a conference and everything being like difficult. Yeah, but you know, few of us actually had been a worse one because, you know, we had to travel to get our visa first, for example, or, you know, we had to wait longer to go to our hotel. And um, I, I guess one of the first ways is just to understand that sympathy. Ezgi says that she cannot say with certainty that these discriminatory experiences qualify as racism. But she certainly feels the implications of being othered. Being a Turkish woman with a Turkish passport, I think it's tough because... As I said, I might look racially ambiguous. I'm a secular person, so there are no points to pick on me on that. But overall, I do feel that I receive negative treatment based on my passport. Not necessarily on my looks, but based on my passport. Is this racism? I don't know. Maybe not. But it is discriminatory treatment on a different level. I guess the moral of the story is this. No matter how much you try to integrate, there are some legal barriers you cannot easily overcome. And these barriers may not appear to be racist on paper, but they do a similar job. So I'm not calling out anyone to be racist here. What I'm saying is that you don't have to be racist to enforce a system that produces discriminatory outcomes. Ezgi reflects on her understanding of race and racism against the background of her experiences. I think that one of the classic definitions I heard was like, racism is discrimination plus power, because there's a hierarchy, power hierarchy as well. I guess it's just discrimination based on difference, based on the looks, based on your religion, your ethnicity, in my case, passport, because, you know, the other things failed. <laughs> but definitely there's this hierarchical element to it, like this power dimension, powerful versus powerless. Like powerful can have an opinion about the powerless and kind of the opinion of the powerful counts here. I mean, um, in a way, People talk about reverse racism. It can go both ways as well. But I, th- I don't think reverse racism or other instances are as impactful because of the hierarchical situation or power dynamics we are talking about. And I feel like, I guess it, uh, my definition is probably broader than a lot of people because they might just reduce it to skin color, which is also a valid definition as well. But I feel like skin color is also... Um, has a lot of baggage behind it. It's about the culture, it's about the other practices, it's about history. When I was talking about my colleagues or peers at Erasmus program asking, like, we don't consider Turks to be European. It was about race, it was about other things, it's about us having a different religion or different settings. So in a way, a lot of things are very much linked and you can have a small, you know, very concise definition, you know, like discrimination based on skin color versus a comprehensive definition that's discrimination based on different attributes and where you have a hierarchical situation between the one discriminator and discriminated. I don't know, I'm kind of open to both of them. I guess we just need to also understand and appreciate the degree of racism and experiences we are facing. And obviously, some people have it worse. So because it shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't strip them off that position as well. And that's something that I say when I, when I say that I don't face it physically because, I mean, it's the type of treatment I'm receiving is based on documents, right? Like you might not always show your documents to people. And some people have it all the time as long as they exist because they're there. They look different and that's enough to be discriminated against. So I guess that's the most utmost and most terrible form is that probably. Mine is one of the milder forms, if you want to put this on a continuum, actually. For a long time, Ezgi didn't really actively reflect about her understanding to race and racism because for her whole life, she's been working on blending in with her surroundings, be it in different cities in Turkey or in academia. But recently, she began to appreciate her identity and the value of sharing her experiences so people start seeing the world from her perspective. 
I feel like it's good to see a whole spectrum of things that people might experience when it comes to discrimination. And, um, and overall, it helped me because of my little talk about like my first, my life in Turkey. You know, like the part about my grandmother and everything. In a way, I told this from the perspective of today. Back in the day, I was actually not, as I said, I wasn't volunteering that information. But now that I see all the wealth of experiences and different forms of discrimination and racism happening around me, I felt like, you know, I'm proud that I'm different too. In a way, that encouraged me to talk about my difference. Because my life, I worked for similarity. I go for, you know, looking, blending in. I mean, that these are, you know, I thought this is a good instinct. This is a survival instinct, obviously. But in a way, I think sharing the stories also make you feel that you should be proud of difference as well. And still tell them how difficult it was for you to come to this point. You know, not everyone starts from the same starting point, unfortunately. Some people have to take longer journeys. And maybe it's good to know that too. You can find more information about racism in Turkey as well as other articles, books, and videos Ezgi recommends people to take a look at on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find a transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luke Inouye. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Esgi for her time and energy in going down memory lane for us, sharing with us her daily struggles, and raising important reflections on this issue.